it was four years ago we had here a sermon series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the church of Corinth, a church in conflict with divisions and divisiveness. Our passage this morning, Acts chapter 18, recounts the beginning of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. We see that there was conflict from the beginning. The Corinthian chaos existed from the beginning and continued even after the church was formed. Paul continually ministered the gospel so that the God of order continually entered into the Corinthian chaos. We might see that and have God even enter into our own chaos. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, it is good to come to you in prayer and good also to have you speak to us by your word as we even anticipate coming to you who has come to us in the sacrament. So we would pray now that your Holy Spirit would indeed dwell in us, dwell with us, that you might by your spirit bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word, that we would know it from you. And so as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Listen to God's perfect word from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged as persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court, but Galio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, 
Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Contria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So our passage here begins by telling us that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is about 50 miles away from Athens. And in keeping with Paul's pattern on this second missionary journey, it is another major city. You may recall that the first missionary journey went through several smaller towns, but this second missionary journey brings the gospel to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea to Athens and now to Corinth. Corinth, like some of the other cities we've seen, contains a wide diversity of people, social classes, and ethnic groups. Trade and commerce were happening by land as well as by sea as a coastal town. But it was also well known that Corinth was corrupt. Commentators note this. In the ancient world, the name Corinthian was synonymous for the most perverted behavior. Corinth was a center of the cult of the love goddess Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. And at one time, there were 10,000 temple prostitutes. They did business with the sailors and other commercial people who passed through the town. If you were called a Corinthian in the ancient world and were not actually from Corinth, you would regard that name as an insult. So Corinth was corrupt, very cosmopolitan and commercial, kind of like most major cities today. The Corinthian chaos is the same chaos that we see everywhere that sin still exists. The answer then continues to be Jesus Christ who alone conquers sin. And so the Lord sends Paul to Corinth where he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla who already appear to be believers and who had been expelled from Jerusalem by the Roman emperor Claudius. That expulsion is more fully recorded by the ancient historian Suetonius. Now, I'm not going to say much about Aquila and Priscilla this week. They'll be the focus next Sunday when we get to the second half of uh, Acts chapter 18 and the outset of the uh, third missionary journey. Now Paul connects to them here because they are fellow believers in Christ and also by God's wonderful providence, they have the same trade, tent making. Today we refer to tent making ministries, those who work a trade to pay the bills either in part or in full while also in great engaging in ministry beyond that vocational work. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which we are all involved in tent-making ministry. Your employment is where you do your main work and live out your vocational calling, which itself is a ministry. But you also minister in your family and in your other relationships, within your hobbies and community, and in and with the church. The Lord only calls some to full-time vocational ministry often said, the only reason I'm a pastor is because God needs to keep a closer watch on me. And also so I stay awake for sermons. My vocation as pastor 
really is not holier than your various vocations. Paul was a tent maker at a time when tents were needed for homes, businesses, and for shelters for everything under the sun. It was skilled construction work. Paul did tent making during the week, and then verse 4 says, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And that word reasoned is what we've seen before, to dialogue, the give and take conversation, not Bible bashing, but a give and take conversation to reason things out. So that takes us to verse 5, which is a significant transition from Paul as tent maker to Paul as preacher. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And so Paul moves from part-time preacher and full-time tent maker to Paul as preacher full-time. Why? Because, not because tent making was not honorable, but because his primary call is to be a preacher. He's now free to engage in that dialogue all day, every day, in and around the marketplace of Corinth, as well as in the synagogue, sharing the good news that Jesus is the Christ. How was he now able to do this? Because Silas and Timothy have arrived. What difference does that make? Well, in part because these two were his main partners, and they can now come and help carry out the work, but also because Silas and Timothy brought financial support from Thessalonica and Berea, and even perhaps, again, from the incredibly generous church in Philippi. Couldn't do wire transfers from one bank to another back in those days. You couldn't just write a check and send that or make a, a direct deposit. Financial support was the carrying of actual cash and coin from one location to another. Silas and Timothy were entrusted for this. The churches in the towns were taking up offerings, as we do today. And a portion of those offerings was given for the outreach work, just as a portion of our offerings support outreach efforts. It's the biblical model for both the Old and New Testament church. The Old Testament church, the nation of Israel, brought their tithes to the temple for distribution to the assortment of needs, including the full-time Levitical priests and workers at the temple. Additional offerings beyond the tithes could also be collected and given for special needs. The same pattern is what we see in the New Testament church, the church of Christ, but rather than bringing the tithes to the temple, the church of Jesus Christ, those individual churches that had been planted and established in various cities, towns, and villages, they brought their tithes to the local church for the assortment of needs within that church, within their own community, and then also for outreach efforts. And sometimes they also took up additional offerings beyond those tithes that were collected for special needs. The church in Philippi is recognized as outstanding for an ongoing generosity and partnership with Paul. They supported Paul not only while he was with them in Philippi, but then again and again. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And then a few verses later in that letter, he speaks from his present situation, which was when he was imprisoned in Rome, and we'll get to that a few weeks down. But he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And so they supported Paul right to the end. The church in Philippi becomes the model for giving and supports the work of the local church and the gospel outreach into all the world. Regular tithes and extra offerings joyfully giving. And so Paul as preacher full-time didn't mean he was raking it in. And Paul as preacher full-time didn't mean that there were ongoing tent revivals where thousands were being saved as they sang just as I am. Actually, what is first recorded is the opposition. When the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Paul will never again talk to Jews, but that he will no longer spend his time at the synagogue in Corinth in endless, fruitless debates with people who refuse to listen to anyone but themselves. His ministry will focus on the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, as well as unbelievers of all kinds. And he will engage in reasonable dialogue with reasonable people. It's what we've seen before. It is harder to convert those who think they know everything, who are sure they have it all figured out. You see them on Facebook all the time. In Thessalonica, it was only a few Jews, but a plethora, many plethora, of Greeks who responded to the gospel. And at that time, I said, that is one of the many reasons that we don't need to fear the pluralism that exists in our culture. Our society is filled with people who are open to new ideas, and that is a good thing. We have people who are open to questions and to wanting to consider things, and that's a good thing. But there was fruit even among the Jews. In fact, the synagogue ruler, Crispus, what a great name that is, right? Crispus, and his entire household places their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the majority of the Jews at the synagogue did not, but the synagogue ruler did. And Paul recounts in his letter to the Corinthians that Crispus was one of the few people that he actually baptized. Now, the central part to this entire passage is the vision to Paul in verses 9 through 11. This is so good. Let me read it again. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. This is so good, I could read that again and again. Not because it was a vision to Paul. Paul's an apostle and he had received visions before. We'll get them again. It's a phenomenon that was part of that apostolic age. We don't receive visions today. We have the whole of God's revelation in all of scripture. We also don't receive promises that no one will ever attack or harm. Paul had certainly been attacked and harmed before and he will be again. And so the promise here is... God's promise to him while he is in Corinth, which is really remarkable because at this moment, before that vision, it feels like, here we go again. In almost every city, Paul is reasonably trying to reason with the Jews, but a group gets upset, stones him, beats him, takes him before the court, gets him imprisoned, and it looks like, here, here we go again. But God says, no, not this time. I've got a different plan here. And the best part is that end of verse 10. I have many people in this city. That is a definite statement. God doesn't say, well, Paul, keep doing what you're doing and hopefully it'll make a difference somehow. 
God doesn't say, well, there may be some people who will respond. Let's just keep our fingers crossed and keep on trying. God doesn't say, some people may respond if you keep on keeping on, so let's just do that. God says, I have many people in this city. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, before there was dirt, God had determined to save those he had determined to save. I have many people in this city. Can I tell you some good news? God has many people in the city of Butler. They do not yet know the Lord. They have not yet heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord says to us, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. It is this sovereignty of God that inspires our evangelism. We don't evangelize hoping that maybe it will have some success. We evangelize because we know that it will. We don't know who, when, or where. And so we share the gospel with everyone, all the time, everywhere. I have many people in this city. When Paul received this vision, he may have been ready to give up and simply move on to the next town. Perhaps sometimes you feel like what you're doing is just never going to succeed, that what we're doing is just never going to succeed. I have many people in this city. How do we know that promise is still true? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. There are people right here in the city of Butler within quick walking distance of where we sit right now who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and never experienced gospel of grace outreach. It may seem like that's impossible because so many of us grew up in an age where everyone went to church at least at some point and heard the gospel somehow, where the gospel was even shared to some extent in virtually all public places. That is simply not the case today. And so there are people who have never seen a Bible or heard anything from it, People who have no idea what prayer is. People who only know the words Jesus Christ as profanity. It isn't because they are worse than us, but because someone shared the gospel with us sometime, somewhere. And so it is that we are called to do the same for others. Because God says, I have many people in this city. Now, after this vision, if this were a movie, you would expect the next scene to have the inspiring music and a series of victorious accomplishments, right? This is after the great speech and the Rocky training montage, right? The team goes on a winning streak and gets to the championship. Man and woman spend increasing time together filled with laughter and arrive finally at their wedding day. Paul gets the vision of God-guaranteed victory and what happens next? Verse 12. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. Wait a minute. God, you just said no one is going to attack me, and now there is a united attack against me. And here we go again. Brought back in front of a local court, a mob mentality of a crowd who's going to win over the court. I'm going to get beaten and thrown in prison again. Here we go again. But watch what actually happens in verse 13. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be the judge of such things. And so you can, you can picture Paul opening his mouth and getting ready to speak. 
And all of a sudden, he's interrupted by Galileo, of all people. For the first time, a legal official sees right through the bogus nature of the whole thing. He doesn't give in to the crowd's mob mentality. He doesn't get caught up in idle curiosity. He doesn't fear the repercussions if he doesn't give the loudmouths what they want. Instead, he sees the whole thing for what it is, unreasonable. And so it is unreasonable for him to listen to this. Essentially, he says, you all are being completely unreasonable, simply demanding to get what you want. And so he had them ejected from the court. And to prove how unreasonable they are, they don't pause to consider, wow, maybe, maybe we are out of line. Maybe we need to just step back and pause for a moment and listen instead of continually talking. Nope. Verse 17, they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler who took over after Crispus had come to Christ, was their representative to articulate their attack against Paul in the court. They decide that Sosthenes failed to make the case. They don't believe that they are wrong. They just think the Sosthenes didn't argue well enough, and so they beat him. Now, it would have been great if Galileo saw this and did something about it to actually imprison the ones who are the ones really causing the problems, but he walks away showing no concern whatsoever. But the long-term result of all this is that the Jews in Corinth have lost all credibility. Guess what happens to Sosthenes? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth. Sosthenes, the next synagogue ruler, also comes to Christ, leaving the side of the unreasonable attacking Jews, places his faith in Jesus Christ, and joins Paul in ministry. Now, in plotting out this sermon series, I had gone back and forth as to where to place verses 18 through 22. Many connect it to the rest of the chapter, 23 to 28, so that chapter 18 is divided into two chapters. You have Paul and Corinth, which we've seen so far, and then it's Paul's ministry with Aquila and Priscilla, beginning at verse 18 to the end. We're going to cover, again, Aquila and Priscilla next week, but verse 23 is the start of the third missionary journey. What we read here in 18 to 22 is the conclusion of Paul's ministry in Corinth, then him sailing to Ephesus, where Aquila and Priscilla will remain, and then Paul goes back to the sending church of Antioch in order to give a report on the events of this second missionary journey. So I want to look at this for a moment so that we can wrap up this second journey. Remember, that at the start of the second missionary journey, Paul kept trying to go in one direction, but the Lord kept pushing him into another direction. Where Paul had wanted to go was Ephesus, but it was not time yet. God had purposed for him to go to Macedonia and into Greece, where he had then went. The third missionary journey will focus on Ephesus, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. And so verse 18 tells us that before leaving Corinth and before setting sail for Ephesus and then Antioch, Paul had his hair cut off at Kentria because of a vow he had taken. And it is most commonly understood that this was the temporary Nazarite vow that we read about earlier in the service from Numbers chapter 6. 
most likely in response to the vision that he had received in Corinth. The Lord told him to stay in Corinth, that the Lord would protect him, that the ministry would prosper because I have many people in this city. And so for a year and a half, Paul stays. And it would seem that in response to this vision, for that year and a half period of time, Paul took a Nazarite vow, signaling his utter dependence on God for God's provision, for God's protection, and for God's prosperity in his ministry. And sure enough, God did all that he had promised. God upheld all of his promises. God upheld his vows. And so Paul was able to uphold his. And so Paul leaves Corinth with thankful acknowledgement of God's fulfilled promises. And Paul is able to cut his hair as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. So that we see that it really is not about us. It really is about God. God calls us to go and to do And it is God who brings out his intended results. He first makes the covenant promise. We respond by faith and God produces the fruit. Salvation begins at God's initiative. We respond. Ministry begins at God's initiative. We respond. And so gospel application into every aspect of life and existence is our response to God's initiating grace. God acts we respond. God speaks, we respond. God invites us now to come to the table of grace to nourish our very souls. And we respond because the truth has set us free. Amen.